Good morning, everybody. It's been a while since I've seen some of you. It's good to, good to see you. Glad to, glad to see also that people read our emails because that was the only way to find out. I think that uh, we, we have an 11 a.m. service, so it's very encouraging. <clears throat> I'm going to keep telling myself that you're reading the emails. You may have found out through a friend. I don't know. Um, so I was told recently that uh, TBN.org created a way for you to experience the sights and sounds of Jonah. Uh, it's good to know that the TBN is tracking with Pillar's sermon schedule and supporting us in this way. Um, I cannot say that my message is Jan Crouch approved, um, but you can go visit if you want to. If you can't bring yourself to visit uh, TBN.org, you can just step outside tomorrow and you'll be treated to all the sights and sounds of Jonah too. And that's where we're going today, so I'll pray and we'll get started. Father, we pray that you would help us. We're in need of help in every way. Uh, I need your help to uh, deliver this message, uh, to deliver it faithfully, and uh, we all need your help, Father God, for you to, by your spirit, by your grace, uh, uh, transform our hearts through it, uh, that, our, that we would receive it. We need your help to receive it, to apply it, to live it out. Um, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week when we introduced this series, um, we, we introduced the theme of the series, and that is that while on mission, as his sent people, um, uh, God, our good father, faithfully pursues us as his mission. So while we are on mission, we are his mission. And in Jonah 1, we saw that when God's mission exposes the rebellion in our hearts and we respond by running away, our good father pursues us. He doesn't say, oh, you go ahead and run, I'll find somebody else. He pursues us, and he calls us to abandon our escape plans. For Jonah 2, I was, I was, I was pretty close to giving it um, the, the, the title, The God Who Uses Enhanced Techniques. Um, my theme was going to be something like, uh, for those of you who are like me, whose rebellion is strong, God has to break out the enhanced methods. Uh, to get me to obey. Um, despite seeming to fit well with the water and the drowning theme and everything like that, I thought a safer title might be the God who rescues. Uh, it's more justified by the text and God's character as well. So um, that's where we're headed today. Uh, chapter two here switches genres on us. Um, here we have poetry, which is placed between two narrative bookends. Uh, many times people write songs about harrowing experiences that they've had, and Jonah does that very thing. Um, but why is it included here? When we were looking at chapter one, I talked about how the writer was making an argument with, with the story of Jonah. He was, he was editing out the pieces. You know, he doesn't tell us the long journey all the way to Nineveh or anything like that. He brings to the forefront the parts that he wants to, to teach us something. And here the author accomplishes that uh, by using the way that songs can, in a way, say it all. You know, you can, you can tell your, you, you, when, you, when you tell your friend, just listen to the song. You'll, you'll get what I'm saying. Just, you got to listen to the song, though. Like, I can't just tell it to you. It, it's a song. It, it does it 
in a song way, you know? And uh, so the, the poem continues the narrative, continues the story of Jonah, but it conveys these, these dramatic themes of peril and rescue, particularly effectively by heavily sampling a song that Jonah composed after his rescue. And so the song goes this way. It starts with a flashback to chapter 1, verse 15, when the mariners, they, just like the Lord hurled the wind onto the sea, the mariners hurled Jonah into the raging sea. And the storm that, that has stirred up the sea is called a tempest or a violent, windy storm. Twice it is mentioned in chapter 1, in verses 11 and 13, that the, the storm the, the sea grew more and more tempestuous. It says it twice. It grew more and more tempestuous. Think of the ocean in Okinawa during a, a strong typhoon. No matter how good a swimmer you are, it can be deadly. So in, in chapter 115, it says that the, sea, the, the, the seas ceased from their raging when, after they threw Jonah in. But during the course of the sea becoming calm, Jonah describes being thrashed about. And I'm guessing that Jonah, as a prophet, not part of his uh, career path to get water survival training, so I think that he probably reached the point of near death fairly quickly. Uh, in verse 3, he's surrounded by the flood. The waves are just pounding him. These are huge waves. And the, the, the power and this, this big undulating mass of water is continually smacking him and smashing him. Hundreds, thousands of pounds of force. And in verse 5, he goes under. And the waters close over him. And he's separated from the open air and from oxygen. He's pushed down into the deep, and he descends. He sinks to the very root of the mountains, he says in verse 6, coming to the bottom of the sea, where the weeds growing on the seafloor get wrapped around his head. And Jonah begins to experience drowning. He's losing consciousness. He's, he feels the sensation of dying. And at one point, he seems to think that he has died. In verse 6, he says, the, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. He's talking about the finality of death. He's like, I'm a goner. That's the end of my story. That's how it ends. I'm dead forever. Those bars are closed in over me. Both of those expressions about going down to the base of the mountains and about the bars of the underworld, they both have background in Jonah's time and culture as relating to death. And Jonah is experiencing to a certain extent God's judgment of his rebellion. It surrounds him. In the first part of verse 4, Jonah indicates he believed that God had rejected him, that at one point he had he he felt like he was cut off. Like he's indicating spiritual death as well as physical death that that God has driven him away from his presence and that his eye is no longer upon Jonah. I'm out of his sight. He doesn't even look at me anymore. The dreadful sense of God's wrath fills his mind in the cold darkness of the deep. And our rebellion frequently takes us to places where we don't want to go, right? Running from God is not just dangerous. Dangerous is a pretty strong word, but it's not enough to describe what is happening or what is to come 
to those who ultimately run from God. It's not just risky as if there's a chance that we'll get away from it. Our rebellion betrays a lazy and deficient understanding of sin and its consequences. Because we don't see a direct, specific, immediate consequence every time we rebel, we can begin to believe the lie that sometimes there are no consequences. But the truth is all rebellion taken by itself has a sure end. There are, there are guaranteed consequences. James 1.15 says that sin, when it is fully grown and brings forth death, uh, it, it brings forth death. Death follows sin. It follows it every time. I try to teach this to my preschooler, Mahari. Uh, I, I give her consequences for her rebellious actions and I, I do my best to, along with that, to talk to her about her rebellion, what's going on in her heart. And, uh, and, and we talk about how Adam and Eve disobeyed and why we're here and why she's experiencing this, this rebellious tendency and everything. And she's also faithful at three years old to remind me of that whenever I rebel. And she's like, Daddy, Adam and Eve sinned, and that's why you did that. And I'm like, this shouldn't be happening already. I felt like I had more time. She's really smart. <laughs> so I'm trying to give her a good understanding of sin and its consequences. That way she won't continue in sin. And she won't let it grow and flourish and eventually envelop her life in the death consequences of sin. Now, if we're honest... Like I said, adult followers of Christ are still, through our preschoolers or through other people, continuously being corrected by the Holy Spirit and reminded on a regular basis that it will bring forth death if we don't repent, if we let it remain. Now, have you believed that harboring bitterness will not bring forth death in your heart, in your devotional life? Death follows rebellion. Have you believed that slandering someone or listening to someone slander someone else and that it won't prevent you from then later on showing love to that person that was slandered, that it won't change your view of them and make it hard for you to treat them the same way? Death follows rebellion. Have you believed that you can view pornography or you can casually flirt with someone who's not your spouse and then it won't begin killing your romance and your marriage? Death follows rebellion. Have you believed that you can let loose in fits of anger and it won't crush your spouse and your kids' hearts? Death follows rebellion. Have you believed that you can selfishly insist on your own way and manipulate situations to get your own way and it won't affect your relationships? Death always follows rebellion. All right, so we've hit rock bottom. Jonah's not the only one who hits rock bottom. We do. Our rebellion gets confronted by God. He lets us experience and see some of the, uh, the judgment to our sin. Rebellion has consequences. It ultimately ends in death if we don't repent and uh, if we leave it there. Uh, Jonah here thinks this is the end of the line. But something happens. When he's there on the ocean floor, entirely helpless, he will not be able to get out of this situation himself. He will not 
be able to live. God breaks in. Jonah reaches the lowest of possible points, surrounded by the consequences of his rebellion. God breaks in. Verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. It's so good, I want to read it twice. When my life was fading away, fainting away, I remembered the Lord. With everything else stripped away, And brought to the end of himself, Jonah remembers the only hope he has, and it's the very one from whose presence he's been fleeing. Pastor Tim Keller writes this. He says, it is only when you reach the very bottom, when everything falls apart, when all your schemes and your resources are broken and exhausted, that you are finally open to learning how to completely depend on God. As is often said, you never realize that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. You must lose your life to find your life. And so it is a gift from our Heavenly Father when He does that. It's a gift from Him whenever it doesn't go smoothly as we prayed. It's okay to pray things go smoothly, but whenever it doesn't go smoothly, it's a gift from our Heavenly Father that He's not Uh, giving you a smooth ride because he's trying to confront something. He's trying to surface rebellion. He's pursuing you not through a smooth journey. He's pursuing you through rough seas. He's pursuing you through storms. And and that is a gift from him. And so um, that that is not something to to take and think, oh, God doesn't love me because it's not going well. Is God loves me, and that's why he's not letting it go well. He loves me that much. It's a better parent that doesn't let things go completely well in order that rebellion would be surfaced, exposed, confronted. That's a, that's a, that's a better parent. It's a better father than the one who just... Um, gives us exactly what we want and gives us the smooth ride. Because if we ride the smooth ride, we never, may never wake to our rebellion and we may continue in it and ultimately get judged for it. He's leading us to repentance. So after verse 4, uh, uh, after saying in verse 4 that he was driven away from God, Jonah says, after he thinks that God's rejected him, hope in God's mercy rises up in Jonah and he says, I shall again look upon your holy temple. Jonah's fading in and out of consciousness. He's in the last moments of, of, of losing, losing it all. He, he's in the last moments of letting go his grip on life. And in that moment, God gives him life-filled hope in himself. I shall again look on your holy temple. This did not arise in a, in a, in a person who, who uh, was left to his own devices. This did not come and originate out of Jonah's heart. This came into Jonah's heart as an inbreaking of God and giving Jonah hope and saying, hope in me, I will rescue you. You will look on my temple again. After saying in verse 6 that he was a goner, that the underworld had shut its bars on him forever, he recounts, yet you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. I was buried under millions of pounds of water. I was buried. And you brought my life up from the pit. I was like basically in the grave. I was in Sheol. And you brought it out by your power. Jonah had experienced God's judgment, but not finally. He was surrounded by it. 
God brings him through it. In the Old Testament, God's people saw his waters of judgment. Think of Noah and his family on the ark, surrounded by waters that had judged the whole world, and God was bringing them through it, and he was rescuing them amidst the waters of judgment. Think of the people of Israel walking through the parted waters of the Red Sea that God then used to judge Egypt. And they looked on it, and they were not perfect. They were not deserving in themselves of this rescue. This water really was what they deserved for their rebellion, for their sin. And they looked on it, but they didn't experience it. They didn't experience it finally. It didn't come in and sweep them away and and bring final judgment on them. God brought them through it. God let them see it and hear it. The judgment is real to them, but so is his deliverance. The psalmist says in chapter 91, verse 8, of the one who trusts God, you will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked From time to time, God's people, we, who believe in him, trust him, we will see the judgment that our sins deserve. We will see it. We will look at it. God will allow us a visual. And then we will see that we are delivered from that judgment by faith in him who saves. Now, the father accomplishes a rescue of Jonah physically, and in doing so, he continues to pursue Jonah's heart. Jonah, at one point, looked as if he was going through a burial at sea, but when God brought him back up, it ended up being more of a baptism. The father mercifully didn't let Jonah die, but there was some old Jonah stuff that needed to die and be buried. This is the rhythm of the gospel. By God's grace, we put our rebellion to death in repentance, and we rise again in faith that he is mercifully rescuing us, that he is merciful, that he is good. What do you need to put to death by faith today? I'll ask you that. I personally need to put to death some bitterness that I tend to harbor from past offenses, I need to put to death my practice of comparing myself to others in terms of performance and accomplishment. That practice needs to die. It needs to die and be buried. I need to put it away forever. What do you need to put to death today by God's grace? Now, that's not the end of the story. After this dramatic rescue and the rejoicing, Jonah's singing, and we have this high note, this peak Um, the book's only halfway over. The story continues. And when you get to chapter four, um, it continues. The story, we're not going to talk about it totally until we get there, but the story kind of ends dot, 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 because it's continuing. The father continues to pursue Jonah, just like it continues to pursue you. If you've still got a pulse, God is pursuing you, and he won't stop until this life is over. You know, so he's pursuing you no matter what you've gone through. Maybe, maybe you've, maybe you've experienced a, a great rescue at one point, and then you've gone back into the old ways. You've gone back into the same things that God was pursuing you about. And maybe you're thinking, well, I guess I've tried Jesus 
And uh, it worked for a little while, and, and I guess that's all, all that Jesus has to offer. And, and it wasn't enough for me. It wasn't enough to rescue me. He's still pursuing you. You're still here. He's pursuing you. You may not feel it. You may not see it in the way that you have, in the same way you have in the past. He's pursuing you maybe through more subtle means. Maybe you're not, you're not awakened to how he's speaking to you because he is. He's speaking to you and pursuing your heart. As we saw in chapter one, the gospel uh, mission exposed rebellion in Jonah's heart. In chapter two, we see gospel mercy exposing rebellion in Jonah's heart. Now, before I say anything about Jonah's prayer, there are indeed good genuine aspects to Jonah's prayer. It's very good in one way. But as with all prayer that issues from human hearts, there is rebellion intermingled. A closer look at Jonah's prayer starts to show some significant deficiencies. Commentator Daniel Timmer writes this. He says, the theology of the prayer is orthodox when considered abstractly, but in the context of the book, it comes into a different light. If we took Jonah's prayer and we put it up on the wall without the rest of the story, it's such a good prayer. It, it puts its hope in God. It says a bunch of true things. But that's not where the prayer happened. It didn't happen on a wall. It didn't happen on a meme. It didn't happen disconnected from a man who is running from God and rebelling from him. That's the context in which it occurred. And so that's how we have to read it. It applies in it universally, very universally, as many of the Psalms do, with only a couple exceptions. Psalms were written to apply, apply very universally. So it does apply. But when we're talking about Jonah, there's some things that we need to pull out that will really help us see how we pray deficiently uh, in response to our situations. Jonah was a trained, disciplined student of God's word, and it comes out uh, in that prayer. He knew the doctrines inside and out. He had, um, to an extent, good theology, uh, but we can see that he didn't use theology in the way that it's supposed to be used. Theology is so good. Rich, vibrant, robust, deep theology is so good, unless you use it to serve yourself and not to apply to yourself. We can see that Jonah neglected to apply the word to his own heart in a consistent way, and we can see that in glaring gaps. We can see it in what Jonah does not say. In chapter 1, Jonah's rebellion took on an obvious form of physically running away, but here it is more subtle. First, Trying to find repentance in, in Jonah's prayer is like trying to find a Chicago politician who doesn't fit in with the mafia, okay? That's how hard it is. It's extremely hard, possibly fruitless endeavor. Jonah admits he needs rescued from the water. He admits that clearly, readily. I need help. I'm dying. But not from his own rebellious heart. He doesn't admit here, I need rescue from my own rebellious heart. Jonah does not mention his own role in the events that brought him here, but in contrast, he clearly states God's agency in him being in this crisis. 
He associates God very closely to these threats to his life by adding these possessive pronouns. Your billows, your waves crashed over me. Your billows, your waves, God. You're the one who tossed this storm at me and it was going to kill me. But then you rescued me. It's incomplete. Of course the waves and the billows are crashing over Jonah. You just want to say, Jonah, of course. You're receiving justice. You're a person of justice. You can't stand the, the thought of mercy being shown to a foreign people. You want justice to be done to the Ninevites. Jonah unfairly revels in the mercy shown to himself, but demands justice for others. Jonah flatters himself in comparison with idol worshipers. It's as if, you know, as if that's relevant right now to what's going on. He just brings up idol worshipers, other people's idolatry, other people's vain hopes. This is something we can do if we're not careful. We can try to escape real repentance by shifting to the topic of other people who are more messed up than us. We throw them a few jabs when we're up against the ropes for our own rebellion. Change the subject. Lastly, while Jonah promises that he will sacrifice to Yahweh with a thankful voice and pay his vows, God kind of, in the story, completes this irony that had been building in chapter 1 between what the mariners were doing and what Jonah was doing, which is like totally out of sync with his words, and they were actually acting out the reverence to, to Yahweh. You see in chapter 1, verse 16, the things that Jonah says that he will do, those very, two, very same two actions the mariners actually do. Now, Jonah may in fact do them later, but that the writer includes Jonah's words and the mariner's actions, the writer is very purposeful about what he brings up. And he brings up Jonah's words, and he brings up the mariner's actions. And they're happening at the same time. The mariners are heading back to shore, and that's where they do these things. And Jonah's down, uh, down there, and he promises that to the Lord. It implies that lip service was another one of the flaws in Jonah's repentance. Now, talking about Jonah's repentance and, and, and the flaws in it and the flaws in his prayer reminds me of my own. It's like a mirror being held up to me. I can see myself here, and I hope you can too. Have you seen yourself yet? The flawed repentance, the flawed prayers. I can't stand here in judgment of Jonah because I do some of the same things. I suffer from some of the same blindness. And it's because my heart needs to be reshaped by the gospel in many ways that Jonah's did. Without even realizing it, I, I've learned Without even realizing it, I've learned how to keep God's at arm's length by going just far enough to just feel like I've met the requirements and then I don't go any further. Sometimes I defend by comparing myself to other people's worst sins. I, I, I mentioned how I didn't go this far. This guy over here, he went this far. Uh, this, this person over here, they went that far. That, that's bad. As if my actions weren't bad, as if my actions weren't deserving of judgment. Whenever we compare that way, 
you know, there's, this, there's certain aspects that need to be taken into account, like what actually is done. But when it comes to the heart, it's just rebellion, both of them, no matter how far you go, whether it is an action of the body or a look of the eye. Jesus said, you know, lust is lust. You've done the same thing in your heart. It's murder. Hate, you've done the same thing in your heart. That rebellion in the heart is the same. Our Father is not a superhero who swoops in to save good people from bad people. He's a good Father who pursues us to rescue us from our own rebellious hearts. Romans 2 verse 4 says that God's kindness is meant to bring us to repentance. His rescue is one that humbles us and seeks to change us, not to bring us out of uh, of this, this tough situation so we can be like, whew, I'm glad I'm out of that. Now I can just continue on. You know, the bad people are gone. The superhero's been here. We can go on with our lives. It's not what he does. He rescues in order to change. He shows us and demonstrates us to us his mercy so that we would lower our guard and bring our rebellious attitudes out and, and our, our rebellious actions out and repent. His mercy is not meant to be an occasion to justify ourselves. We can tell our Father all day that he is great for showing us mercy, but if we don't come clean about the reason he had to show us mercy, then we're actually running from his mercy, not embracing it. Whenever, whenever I, I pray a prayer and I just thank God, thank you for bringing me out of that tough situation and, and bringing me through through that experience, through that time in my life. That's good. But what brought me there? What rebellion was in my heart? What idols were I clinging to that brought me to that place? If I don't mention that, I make it a prayer about, thanks God, I know that you think I'm a good person and that's why you rescued me and it's not because I needed grace or rebellious or anything like that. That guy over there, that's, you know, he really, he needs rescued from his heart, but not me. That's what we're saying when we pray that prayer and we don't confess our rebellion. When we neglect to confess what we have done, what we have clung to, the hopes that we have clung to that are not in him, the hope of idols, the things that we have done, if we don't confess that, we're running from mercy. We're recasting the story not as God is telling it, not as the scriptures are telling it. We're recasting it and telling it in our own way. Well, there was this good guy and he got into a bad situation and God rescued him because God's good. Where's the mercy? Mercy implies, grace implies that you needed it, that you needed mercy, not just not just niceness, not just kindness from the Father, not just some help. You need help with your heart. You needed mercy. I need mercy. We need it every day. Pray prayers every day that admit your need for mercy. Now, the good news is, and I've got several pieces of good news here. You've already been hearing some good news, but I'm going to really pour it on here because this chapter is full of good news. The good news is that our Father responds to flawed prayer. First of all, He responds. He responds to it. He doesn't say, son, that wasn't good enough. He doesn't say, daughter, just not feeling it. I just, I'm getting this thing from you that I just don't want to have anything to do with that and walk away. 
You know, I don't want to listen to you talk about yourself or you're, you, I don't want to listen to your story. I don't want to listen to this and that because if God were to not listen to flawed prayers, he would never hear a single prayer that ever came from a human heart. He would never hear a single one. They're all flawed. But he listens and he responds. And more good news, he responds with undeserved mercy. Because our prayers, no matter how good they are, they don't deserve mercy. He graciously gives us better than our prayers deserve. With that being said, his aim is not to get us to pray better prayers, but truer prayers. You don't need to become a professional prayer. You just need to confess and be real and really admit and freely admit your need for him, your desperate need for him. It doesn't have to come out eloquently. God is not impressed. God is, is, is not somebody you need to electrify with your prayer. That doesn't make him listen to it more or respond more because this is not about you earning it. This is not about you making yourself ready to receive mercy, like, like deserving of it. That runs from mercy. But when we come to God and we say, look, God, there's nothing I can do right now to deserve your mercy. Let's just get that out of the way right off the bat. Nothing I could do, no way I could pray in a way, no matter how flowery this thing sounds or how long or how many scriptures that I put into it. That doesn't make me worthy of your mercy, but you're merciful and I need it. I need your mercy. There is no prayer that is good enough to save because prayer is admitting that we can't do anything to save ourselves. What truer prayer do you need to pray this morning? How do you need to change the prayer that you've been praying to be a truer prayer? Where have you been leaving some glaring gaps in your prayer of confessing your rebellion, confessing your need for mercy? Where have you been maybe not even realizing, justifying yourself, talking about other people, defending, trying to make yourself look better? It doesn't help. It doesn't help at all. God knows it already. He doesn't need you to tell him because he needs the information. He needs your heart to get to the place where you can say it and you can confess it because something is completed whenever you say it, when the words leave your mouth. Your heart is doing something. Don't run from it. Tell him the truth. Your father is merciful. Believe it. Pray a truer prayer. More good news. The Father is not done with us, just like he's not done with Jonah. We're halfway done with the book here, and after the book, he continues with Jonah. This event in the water, this great rescue that Jonah sings about, it did not complete Jonah's transformation. The book repeats again, like, like it's eerie how it repeats, and it's a little eerie how we repeat, too, and, and it can get us discouraged. We start thinking, like, is this going to work? Continue the rhythm of the gospel. These things die hard. They really die hard. Just like Jonah's hatred of foreigners and his rebelliousness died hard, our rebellious attitudes and habits die hard too. Be faithful in taking that thing down into the deep and re repenting of it and rising again in faith that he is for mercifully rescuing you. This is the rhythm of the gospel. We do it every day. We do it every week. We do it all year long. We'll do it the rest of our lives as he is continuing his pursuit of us. The rescue of Jonah in the water was just part of the Father's ongoing rescue of Jonah. 
as the Father's ongoing rescue of us includes many individual rescues that continue to reshape our hearts. Don't get discouraged about the inch-by-inch progress. I put in two hours a day studying Japanese, and it seems like sometimes nothing changes. <laughs> two hours a day, it's, it's kind of discouraging at times. But if I look where I was six months ago, yeah, I'm in a different place. And if you continue those rhythms of the gospel, repenting faithfully and, and putting your faith in him, you will see that you're making progress, like he's making progress in you. You know, as you're putting your faith in him, you're not where you were. You're not where you will be eventually. None of us are. But you're not where you were. He's continuing to reshape our hearts. The last piece of good news. In Jonah 1, we saw that the father doesn't provoke his children. He doesn't exasperate them. He doesn't anger them and torture them. And like, just because he's irritated at them, he doesn't. He doesn't give our rebellion a fist, you know? He gives it his loving hand. He takes us by the hand, and he patiently deals with us. He surfaces our rebellion like a wise father does so that he can deal with it. He's a better parent. He's a better father. He doesn't leave the rebellion lurking around in there that will eventually put us to death and envelop us in, in judgment. He doesn't leave it there, but he faithfully surfaces that rebellion, and he does it in a gentle, loving way. Sometimes a storm is actually God's gentle way of showing, look, this is what your sin deserves, and I need you to wake up. I'm not going to ultimately do this to you, but I want you to wake up because you need to repent. He doesn't crush his children he patiently deals with them. I have a strong-willed preschooler. I don't know if anybody else in the room has that. Thank you. I'm not alone. I love her. She's smart. She's beautiful. She is hilarious. Sometimes at the wrong times, whenever I'm trying to teach about rebellion. Um, and she cracks daddy up. And, and she's, she's really strong, though. And I told Melissa whenever we got married, I said, "Hun, pray that these children are more like you, not like me. Because I know how much grief I gave my mom, and we might have to tap out at one if they're like me. Like, they might do us in. God has used my preschooler to expose my rebellion on a daily basis. It does not feel good. I'd like to be in the place like, no, this is not about me. This is about you. <laughs> Don't turn this around. She's too smart for three years old. When she disobeys and she screams, I'm tempted to be unlike my heavenly father and just raise my voice louder and just shout over her. Maybe if I just crush this rebellion, maybe if I just get louder, maybe if I be scarier, maybe she will stop rebelling. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And it's not how our heavenly father deals with our rebellion. He doesn't rise up and crush us. He doesn't 
sling insults at us. He doesn't say things to, to shame us or to, to, he penetrates our hearts with conviction, but the conviction of the Lord has hope in it. It's not a, it's not a, a, a sorrow that leads to death. It's not an earthly sorrow. It's a heavenly sorrow that brings us, makes us run back to him and says, there's hope. Run back to me. I'll be merciful. I'll change you. It's not, it's not, you know what? You're, you're hopeless. I don't know what to do with you anymore. It's not that. The Father doesn't say that. Along the way, many times I, I just fail to be like my heavenly Father in responding to the normal. When I say normal, I'm just saying that like it's human. She's strong. I keep saying she's strong, but she's human. And rebel, you know, kids rebel just like us. I fail to, to, to respond to that rebellion like my heavenly father. Instead, I, I, I approach it like, like she's a foreign dictator. That's, that's how I respond to it. Tough talk at the negotiating table. Sanctions. More sanctions. You're not done? Sanctions. You will learn. <laughs> Threats. You understand, preschoolers aren't, they're not, they're not interested in peace. This is going to be a scorched earth scenario here. I just want to have a peaceful meal. I just want to go down to sleep because I know, I don't know if you know, but I know that we eventually have to go to sleep because we're human. Why can't we just have this? We take just a few minutes. It's been two hours. We do this every night, and you're, you're acting like it's, like this is the first time I ever tried to put you to sleep. You know, God's not interested in efficiency a lot of times as much as we are. He knows that dealing with rebellion is not efficient. He's the father that stays up for two hours with us if that's what it takes. He's not going to resort to crushing us so that it can go quicker. He will break out the storms if that's what it takes to wake us up. But he won't crush us. And he won't... Let us drown in our guilt and our shame. He won't speak into our identity, crushing things in order for this to go faster. He knew beforehand what he was getting into when he called you his child. He knew every fit. He knew every rebellion. He knew it all. This is not shocking him. He knew what he was getting into. I don't know if I knew what I was getting into whenever I had kids. But God's teaching me that this is normal that this is part of pursuing rebellious hearts. And whenever I fail to be like Jesus to my daughter and I'm drowning in guilt, with both of us drowning in our rebellion, me and mine and her and hers, it just kind of feels like, well, who's going to, you know, who's going to correct this situation because now I'm feeling my rebellion and who's going to come into this? I'm tempted to outright despair. But in those times, uh, there's this thing that we, uh, we bought Mahari uh, and we hung on the wall for her to, to hang on her, uh, her towels and her backpacks. And I saw it this week and uh, I was like, yeah. And I remind myself that despite my rebellion, Despite my flawed prayers, my flawed repentance, my flawed fathering, despite her rebellion, 
our God is the God who rescues. And John, uh, John Booth's going to come up here and he's going to lead us in a prayer of response to, to the message that we've heard. And then we're going to move into communion.